Okay, First Samuel chapter 28. We had spent the last two weeks talking about Saul going to a, a witch, a medium, uh, to get some advice, how Samuel came back from the dead and how, how God just interceded on that. But let me touch on, on an interesting point here. In verse 20 of 1 Samuel 28, Then Saul immediately fell, length, fell full length upon the ground and was very afraid because of the words of Samuel. Also there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no food all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul and saw that he was terrified, and said to him, Behold, your maidservant has obeyed you, and I have taken my life in my hand, and I have listened to your words which you have spoken to me. So now also please listen to the voice of your maidservant, and let me set a piece of bread before you, that you may eat and have strength, that you may go on your way. But he refused, and he said, I will not eat. However, his servants together with the woman urged him, and he listened to them. So he arose from the ground, and he sat on the bed. The woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly slaughtered it, and she took flour, kneaded it, and baked unleavened bread from it. She brought it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they arose, and they went away that night. So remember, Saul had come from Mount Gilboa to Endor to meet with this witch. It was about a ten-mile walk. He had to go very close to where the Philistines were in the Valley of Jezreel. And they did this by night. He had not eaten anything that day. They had walked ten miles that night, and that wasn't walking down the sidewalk. That was walking over crags and rocks and, and, and quite hilly terrain. And... They didn't have shoes or hiking boots like we have. And, and traditionally, in, in wars and in battles, and you can read a lot about this, for example, in the Civil War, a lot of the physical problems that ensued were, were foot problems because many people didn't have proper shoes, if shoes at all. Even in the Civil War, there were very few, uh, uh, only, a small portion of, only a portion of the soldiers had, had shoes. Many of them didn't even have shoes, especially for the southern troops. But I'm sure being king and being the top officials, they had some sort of shoes, but they weren't like what we have today. And it says that, that uh, when he had heard this word, Saul fell full length on the ground. So remember what it said of Saul, that it said that he was head and shoulders above all men in Israel. So that means he was a very tall man because he was a head taller than all the other tallest of men. Very large man, full length on the ground when he heard this word. He was absolutely overwhelmed. And so the woman came to Saul in verse 21. And remember, this, this woman is, is the medium that she said, you know, Saul was terrified. And she said, Behold, your maidservant has obeyed you. And I have asked my life, I have taken my life in my hands and have listened to your words which you have spoken. Verse 22. So now also please listen to the voice of your maidservant and let me set a piece of bread before you that you may eat and have strength when you go on your way. So, you know, the New International Version, which is more of a paraphrased version, says, let me set some food before you. Doesn't it? Something like that. Let me set some food before you in the NIV. Does it say that? Is anybody reading the NIV? Let me get you some food. What she says specifically, it says, let me put a piece of bread before you. So it was much more specific. It wasn't that, let me get you some food. It was said, said let me get a piece put a piece of bread before you. Saul initially says no, he didn't want to eat, 
And so she urged him, knowing that he was a weak, he, he was in a weakened state. And and so both she and the people were, who were with him uh, urged him in verse 23. And so then it says in verse 24, the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly slaughtered it. And she took flour and kneaded it, and baked unleavened bread from it. She brought it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. And then they arose and went on their way that night. So she says, let me just put a piece of bread before you. But she goes and she kills a fattened calf. It says she quickly slaughtered it. So, you know, these people, you know, they they did this, like we run down to Randall's and quickly buy (laughs) some cooked chicken and bring it back for the, the masses when they want to eat. This is as fast as they could go. So she had a calf ready there, so she slaughtered it. And remember, after you slaughter it, you slaughter it, you have to gut it out, you have to skin it, and then you have to cut it up, and you have to cook it however you're going to cook it. Either you're going to boil it or you're going to put it in a fire and bake it. And, and so all of this had to be done. What is the time period for this? I mean, it has to be over an hour to, by the time you do this. And while she's doing that, she's also kneading bread and getting that ready. What I want to point out here is the degree of hospitality that came. It's really interesting, the hospitality that she showed, and she is a witch. This is the hospitality you get even from a witch. And you see the same pattern of hospitality, and the same practice of saying, let me get you a little, but they end up serving much more. If you look in Genesis chapter 18, and in Genesis chapter 18, uh, Moses is meets two angels of the Lord and the Lord himself. This is the interpretation of it. Now, it talks about these being angels of the Lord. These are the two angels that go to, to two of these go to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. But Abraham is just sitting by his tent and he sees these three men. It is revealed later that two of the three at least were, were, were uh, angels and the third one was probably a physical manifestation of God himself on earth in the form of a man uh, who had appeared often called the angel of the Lord. But if you look in, in, in Genesis chapter 18, reading from verse 1, Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. When he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and he bowed himself to the earth. So again, this is an indication that this was the Lord, because it says in verse 18, in, in, in verse 1 of chapter 18 of Genesis, that the Lord appeared to him. He looked up, and there were three men standing there. It wasn't like he saw them walking from a long way off. They were just standing there. He runs up, and he bows down before them. And in each case, you see in the scriptures, where it was just an angel, the angel would say, get up. You know, you don't, don't pay homage to me like that. I'm just an angel. I'm not God. But in this case, there was no, hey, get up, Abraham. You know, they, they didn't do that. So, clearly, it, it's, it's as if the Lord was appearing in a physical manifestation. And this is, as Christians would say, this was one of the appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament. Jews would not say that. They would characterize this quite differently. But in verse 3, and said, My Lord... If now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under a tree. I will bring you a a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. 
After that you may go, since you have visited your servant. And they said, so do as you have said. So again in verse 5, he says, I will bring you a piece of bread. Let me get your feet washed, relax your bit, I'll bring you a piece of bread. Again, the NIV says, let me bring you some food. That is not an accurate description of what happened. He specifically said, let me bring you a piece of bread. So he says, I'm going to do something little for you, but he ends up doing much more. So it says, verse 6, So so, so Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah, and he said, Quickly, prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it, and make bread, bread cakes. Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf and gave it to the servants, and he hurried, and he hurried to prepare it. He took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them, and he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. So look at what he did. He says, let me bring you a piece of bread and just let's get your feet washed. They said, go ahead, do as you have said. What he does is he runs in, and I understand this very well. I say, let come over at my house, enjoy dinner. And then I say, Shereen, there's people coming. (laughs) And she does all of this. And this is what he does. He says, let me bring you a piece of bread. And he says, Sarah, (laughs) Sarah, get cooking. And he runs out and he, and he you know, goes out to the herd and he, he gets the servants all... Everybody is going and preparing this. And he's just overseeing this whole thing, making sure that everything gets done right. He's just, just working behind the scenes to make sure it's going to get done right. So they, they knit quickly. They, they get flour. They knead it. They make bread cakes. He, he gets, goes to the herd and he takes a tender and choice calf. Uh, uh, to have that prepared. And then he gets curds and milk, uh, uh, and he, he puts all this before them. You know, it's interesting that later on in the Law of Moses, this would not have been allowed. Uh, actually, it says in the Law of Moses, you can't cook a, a calf in its mother's milk. But the Mosaic Law that came after that said you couldn't even have milk and meat in the same refrigerator. You can't even have it. So, so if you go into an Orthodox Jewish home, you have two refrigerators. One for meat, one for milk. If you go into an Orthodox a Jewish restaurant in Israel, if they're serving meat, you can't get milk. I mean, you can't even get milk for your coffee. You, they, they, and if you ask for it, they look at you like, how dare you? But here, here they, you know, this is prior to the law of Moses. And uh, these, these, uh, these men are just enjoying it. But what you see is you see a tendency of hospitality here, how this works. Hospitality goes beyond what is expected. Even a witch can do it. It goes beyond what is expected, and it often involves food. Hospitality often involves food. And you don't have to have a big kitchen, and you don't have to have an expert wife to do this type of thing. You know, I, I lived in a, in a dorm and in my first year of graduate school, and I used to serve, you know, candy and, and, and hot chocolate and, and uh, things to, to guys that would come in the room, and I'd invite guys from, 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 the, uh, from the floor into the room, and I'd just get to know them. I could do what I, I had available. I could do as much as I could do. But then also, uh, uh, when... when um, when I lived, in a, I lived in the discipleship house my last two years of college, and these were just ten guys in a house that was really ratty, in the sense that it had rats living in it. I mean, it, it was, 
it, it was kind of a rustic sort of place, but after living in a place like that, you, you, could, you could live anywhere. It had, so there were ten guys living in this house. It had two bathrooms. But in one of the bathrooms, the shower worked. It didn't work in the other bathroom. And in the other bathroom, the commode worked. It didn't work in the other bathroom. And, and so it wasn't that bad for me because I would rise up very early anyway, and I'd do most of my showering at the gym on campus anyway. That was my way of survival. But, but also the, the furnace didn't work right. And just for kicks, I would take these mouse traps and I'd put some peanut butter on them, set them, and put them behind the trash can in the kitchen. And, and I'd walk back and I'd say to the guys, I'd say, okay, let's time it and see how long. And before I could even finish the sentence, I'd hear pop. You know? <laughs> because there was a little hole behind the trash can in the kitchen floor and they used to come up through this hole. So anyway, in this house though... We tried to make it as hospitable as we could, and we used to invite people over, and we cooked good food. And it wasn't like there were mice in the food. I mean, we bought food, and we cooked the food for them, and we used to have people in. Why did we do this? Not because we knew naturally to do this. We were trained to do this. One of the, one of the, uh, um, the associate pastor was in his late 20s at the time, so he was about you know, eight or eight years older, nine years older than the rest of us, And he instructed us on what to do, that you show hospitality. This is something that you do. This practice of showing hospitality is a scriptural practice where you go beyond what is expected of you. You know, some people will say to Shireen, oh, you know, you don't have to go to all this expense and all this trouble. You know, you can just, uh, you know, buy some frozen food and warm it up. That would be good enough. Shireen says, no, I'm going, I want to make something for them. I want to go beyond that. So the standard is, you know, you just buy some store-bought thing and you warm it up. That's okay. But to go beyond that is what the scriptures show. Look at what Jesus did in Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. So here, Jesus is, you know, remember, Jesus never had a home. Remember, Jesus said that, that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He says that the the birds of the air have nests, the foxes uh, uh, of the field have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So he didn't have a home. But if you look in Matthew chapter 14, reading from verse 19, Matthew 14:19, ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took five loaves, the five loaves and the two fish, and he looked up toward heaven and he blessed the food, breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. They picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve full baskets. There were about 5,000 men who ate besides women and children. So you had 5,000 men plus women. So if you figure each man had a woman plus children, how many children were there? Even if only half of the men had women with them. That's 7,500. And so you want to add another 2,500. So you have 10,000 people here minimally. And it says they ate not just to have a little bite. It says they all ate and were satisfied and had food left over. And you could, you know, come against Jesus. Go ahead. Come against Jesus and say, well, that's a waste, you know. We should economize. We should be, you know, worry about our carbon footprint and <laughs> resources on planet Earth. Why did you make it so that, so that there's now 12 baskets left over? This is kind of a waste, you know. No, Jesus... Jesus was okay with, quote-unquote, wasting on other people. He was okay with that. 
that was okay for him. You know, w- one of the other things that I learned when, when I moved to Indiana and we were in this church, again, that first year that I lived in, in the dorm, uh, we would take turns buying breakfast for these early morning men's meetings. And I lived in the dorm. I didn't have real access. But I would walk down to the, to the supermarket and get stuff. And we were instructed that when you're buying for yourself, you can buy generic and cheap. But when you're buying for the body of Christ, buy trop- Tropicana. Buy the good stuff for the body of Christ. Don't be afraid to quote-unquote waste on the body of Christ. Have there be 12 baskets left over. Shireen never wants to have uh, uh, students go hungry. Never wants to have a deficient amount. And because of that, you know, the fluctuations that can come in our home on Sundays for lunch can, can be 20, can be 50 or 60. Like last week. I mean, it just, just happens. You don't know. But you'll always plan for that. There is nothing wrong with this. When it's for ministry, for the body of Christ, learning to be hospitable. And I think the reason that most people are not is because they've never been taught. It's not because you know, they're, they're inherently selfish. They've just never been taught what it means to be hospitable to the body of Christ. Look in, in Romans chapter 12. Remember, in, in, in the epistles, like the book of Romans... We are instructed on proper courses of action as believers. It's unlike the book of Acts, which is an historical book, which, which talks about many things that we, we, we don't particularly have to do because it, it's talking about the history of the church. But in, in Romans chapter 12, we are instructed of things. And in verse 13 in particular, it says, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. So in Romans 12, it's going through a list of things that believers should practice. One of the things is we practice hospitality. That doesn't mean you be hospitable once. It means that in your life, get a practice of hospitality. A practice. Now, that doesn't mean you have to have 50 people in your home each week. But it does mean that you have people into your home. It does mean that you have a practice there, and it could just be one or two people at a time. That's okay, too. But that there's a practice of hospitality that you do something to take of yourself and let them see your life. Because unless people come into your home, they'll never see the, the manifestation of how much Christ can do through a family, how much He can do through a life. And what happens is, you never outgive the Lord. When you give, you get back so much more. So much blessing is dumped upon you. Look in, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9. God underscores this again. He says, he says uh, um, be hospitable to one another without complaint. That's 1 Peter 4.9. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. That we learn to practice hospitality. I learned this in the body of Christ. I learned this in the body of Christ. And so that when I, when I saw Shireen and how hospitable that she was, I was all the more attracted to her. When you, when you are hospitable, you become more attractive to other people. This is a good thing. This is a hint for those who are unmarried. Be hospitable. You become more attractive when you're hospitable. And it is a requirement for pastors. There's two verses in the New Testament where Paul is instructing Timothy and another one where he's instructing Titus in 1 Timothy 3.2 and Titus 1.8. It says for pastors, they absolutely must be hospitable. Must 
practice hospitality. It is a requirement for pastors. It is part of what we are told to do as believers. It is a requirement for pastors. And if even a witch can do it right, you think that, that we could learn to do this. This is a very good thing to do. Okay, let's turn back to, to 1 Samuel chapter 28 and look at another thought. In 1 Samuel chapter 28, here is a man named Saul. Saul, remember, had killed off all the, the, those who practiced uh, uh, sorcery. According to the word of God, he had driven them out of the land. They were driven out of the land or they would have been killed. And this is what this witch had said when they first approached. She said, don't you know that Saul has done this because Saul had disguised himself at that point. So what does it take, what does it take for a man to go from fulfilling the word of God, which was the law of Moses, to get rid of sorcerers from the land, to get rid of witchcraft from the land, and then himself to go back into it. Why does a man do this when he knows it is so wrong? Let me paint it another way that brings it home to more modern times. What does it take for a man to preach against immorality and adultery and to himself fall into it? Which happens all the time. Why is this? What does it take for a young person to say, I will never get divorced. You don't have to worry about that with us. Not with our marriage. And then ten years later, getting divorced. What is it that draws us from this point of being so committed to something and knowing something is wrong? And then a decade later, just walking out in the same sort of thing. I've seen Christian leaders, and I'm not judging anybody because I'm going to get into this. I've seen Christian leaders say, you know, this one Christian leader was talking about the famous Christian leader who had uh, uh, been very influential, in fact, in in, uh, uh, campus group organizations nationally. Uh, And this man had talked about after he fell into adultery, come back to restoration, who was working through restoration in his marriage, had withdrawn from the ministry for a period of about five years because of this. He was talking about this event and he said, You know, I had often said, there is one thing that will never get me, and that is adultery. Adultery will never get me. And as I've watched this thing over my life as a believer for over 30 years now, what I've learned to do is to never say, I would never do that. I am susceptible to every gross sin out there. I am susceptible to it. And by I, I mean I, Jim Tour. I am susceptible to it. I don't know about you. I am susceptible to it. I was just on the phone with a, with a, a board member uh, from a ministry, and he was talking about um, someone else in the ministry. He said, you know, the guy's not perfect, but I know one thing. We don't have to worry about him ever falling into adultery. And I said, just be careful what you say. I don't put adultery past any man. Not that I suspect you know anyone there on the board. Not at all. I just know the heart of men because I know my own heart. It says in First Corinthians. Let's look at this in First Corinthians chapter ten. First Corinthians chapter ten says in verse twelve. First Corinthians chapter ten, verse twelve. 
Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. If you think you stand, be careful. If you think you're strong enough to overcome this sin, be careful. Sometimes I meet young people and I'll say, you you know, you guys want to get married. What's going to keep you from divorce? And they're like, come on, we love each other. Like, I have never known a couple to get married that didn't love each other. I know it happens sometimes, but I've never known a couple. So all the couples I've known have loved each other when they've gotten married. What's going to distinguish you so that you're not part of the 52% in the church that get divorced? I mean, there's nothing to say. I mean, they never even thought about it. It's as if, you know, everything's going to work out. Even God brought Eve to Adam, made, him, made her from a part of Adam, took a bone out of Adam, fashioned Eve, brought the two together, and their own son ends up being a murderer. I mean, things happen in families. You know, what is it about the heart of man? It says in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 17, verse 9, it just, it just categorizes the heart of man. And remember, Jeremiah had a better heart than, than most of us. And in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, it says, The heart of man is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart of man is more deceitful than all else. Think of something that's deceitful. Think of, you know, deceit. Really deceitful acts. Since the heart of man is more deceitful than all else. So, you know, I will often use that expression, he's a good man, he's got a good heart. But I'm talking about within the heart of man. You know, so within the desperate deceitfulness of man, he's probably on the good side. But it's still really, really bad. The heart of man is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This is my heart. You know, a lot of times people think, you know, I have my act all together and I'm really nice. My kids don't feel that way. So just, just remember, they, they, have, they see more of me than you do. But even they do not get to see what runs through my mind all day and the thoughts that go through my mind and the anger and the bitterness and the lust that goes through my, rocketing through my mind all day. Even God does not expose that, lest we wouldn't want to be around one another. The heart of man is desperately sick. Desperately sick. It's deceitful. Who can understand? So this categorizes the heart of man. So let us not say, I would never do that. That would never happen to me. Oh, look at what that person did. How could they have done that? Uh, I've done that too. Or, I'm quite able to do that. A much better response than saying, I would never do that, is to say, Father, may I never do that. Father, protect me from that. So that when I see one of my comrades, one of my Christian brothers fall into adultery, and so bring that pain upon his family, and upon his marriage, and the one whom he loves, I don't judge them. I don't judge them. I say, Father, protect me. 
Father, protect me. My prayer very often for myself is, Lord, let me die. Take my life before I would do that. And so hurt the woman I love and defame the name of my God. Father, I would rather die. This has to be our prayer to cry out for mercy. What would take a man who purges the land and then goes to the very medium, the very spiritist, to inquire? A man with a heart, much like ours. A man who can. You know, if you, if you listen to uh, this, this, this confession of Tiger Woods, Tiger Woods said, I did this because I felt I could. And, you know, most people got, you know, thought, this, what a trite statement. No, that's a very deep, deep statement. Because I thought I could. Look in, in Proverbs, chapter, chapter, um, Proverbs chapter 16. We're going to look at two verses in Proverbs. First, Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18. Proverbs 16.18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Pride goes before destruction. When pride comes in and says, I would never do that. You know who just heard that? The enemy heard that and says, let me key right in on that person. Let me just go right after them. You know, it's interesting that that right in the instance where Peter is saying, Lord, all others may desert you, but I wouldn't desert you. Jesus said, oh, Satan has, requ- has requested to sift you as chaff from wheat, but I have prayed for you that you would not fall. And after you have returned, strengthen your brothers. As soon as Peter's pride comes and says, all others may desert you, but I never will, Jesus said, oh, really? By the way, Satan has made a request to sift you as chaff from wheat. And when you have returned, in other words, he knew that, that, that Peter was going to fall. He says, oh, by the way, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. You know, this was Peter saying, all others may desert you, but I never would. Oh, Really? Even less than 12 hours from now, you will have denied me three times. Satan just made requests to sift you as chaff from wheat. So as soon as I say, I would never do that, Satan's ears perk up and he's making a request. Let me go after this guy. Because pride goes before a fall. Pride goes before a fall. May our words be, Father, may I never do that. By the grace of God, protect me. May I never do that. Father, by the grace of God, protect my marriage. Because in and of myself, my heart is desperately sick. The only thing that can protect me from adultery, the only thing that can protect me from destroying my life, my family, from losing everything, as the scriptures say, when you fall into this practice, the only thing that can protect me is you, O God, not myself. It is not within me. Father, protect my marriage. Father, protect my marriage. Have mercy on me. I'm not judging anybody's marriage. I'm saying, Father, protect mine. 
Look in Proverbs chapter 27. Proverbs chapter 27. Reading from verse 21. The crucible is for silver and the furnace for gold, and each is tested by the praise accorded him. It's Proverbs 27, 21. The crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold. So how do you purify? How do you test silver to know if it's so You put it in a crucible, you heat it up. You put gold in a furnace and everything else burns away and all the slag comes to the top and you just skim it off. A man is tested by the praise accorded him. Saul was bigger and taller than every man in Israel by head and shoulders. He had all power because he was king. The power that he has, I will never have here on this earth. You know, I look at some very handsome athletic men and I think there is no way that I could stand if I looked like them because I'll be with them and we'll walk into a room and I see women's eyes just drill right in on them women's eyes never do that to me (laughs) and you want to know something I am thankful for that because I never could stand with that sort of look from women wherever I went. And I see what happens with these men. You know, I I taught this Bible study to the Houston Astros, you know, strong men. And I'd see, we'd come out of the Bible study room. It was right there at the stadium uh, on their home stands. And we, we got one of the suites and we'd come walking out of the suites. And there were no, the public wasn't in there yet. But the workers were, and as soon as they'd come walking out, you know, all the women's eyes would be turning on these guys. And I assure you, they weren't turning toward me. They were turning toward these men. And I think, what they have to stand under, I could never do. Because it says, and each is tested by the praise accorded him. The one who gets highly praised, it is all the harder. For the woman who is extremely attractive, It is all the harder. And you know, you come to a place in your life after you've pondered on these verses and you say, Father, or I say, Father, thank you for the way I look. Because I never could have stood had it been different. Because I know that in spite of myself, it has been so hard to stand. Had the temptation been far greater, I never could have stood. Father, Thank you for the way that I look. Father, thank you for the way that you have made me. You know, the whole thing turns around. So the Tiger Woods says, I did it because I thought I could. When the world praises you as being somehow superhuman, you start to believe that. You start to believe that. I don't judge these men that have fallen. I mean, they have lives with temptations far, far more than the temptation that I will ever have. And I have known how difficult it is to stand. Father, protect my marriage. Father, I know what is right. Saul knew what is right. So just knowing what is right does not spare us. Education doesn't do it. Christian education doesn't do it. 
knowing what is right is only part. It is, Father, have mercy on me to walk in that which you have called me. Father, protect my marriage. Father, protect my relationships. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the truth of your word. And Father, I pray for these young people that they would not be quick to judge, but quick to cry out for mercy. Not quick to make bold proclamations of their strength. Because if any man thinks he stands, let him take heed lest he fall. Father, I pray that you so work in their lives that they would learn to continually cry out to you, Father, protect me. Father, protect me from my own deceitful heart, from my own wickedness. Father, that they would learn how to say that prayer and cry out to you. Lord, your mercy be upon them, I pray. Your mercy be upon them. In the name of Jesus. Amen.